Anyway, thank you so much for coming on, Hugh. It's very nice to meet you. I'm Jim. That's Bobby. Uh, welcome to the Futures Edge podcast, everybody. As usual, like I just said, I'm Jim Muriel. That's Bob Aitino, the brains behind the operation, executive producer. We have Hugh Henry, founder of Eclectica Macro. And if you don't know who he is, you don't you don't get out enough. Thank you so much for uh, for uh, joining us, Hugh. Um, we usually play some silly games. We already hit Haggis. You're on, you're in St. Bart's, primary resident. Uh, what's a night like you? You you finish up with us. Do you walk the beach with a glass of wine? Is it something that's wonderful like that or no? I tweet till I drop. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. <laughs> We're losers, all three of us. Yeah. Tweet well, on the beach tonight, will you? Well, you know, when you live in paradise, you know, so so people come here and they have a an amazing time. And if you can afford it, I'd recommend it. Um, but they go back, they return to real life. So I don't live in real life. Um, and I spend a part of my time hiding from the fun folk because you could be out every night, you know, the um there's much to do. So my my life is largely determined by by the daytime and thinking and i'm sure you relate to this the, the stimulus that one gets just from trying to work out this matrix from trying to escape this matrix um is kind of everything you need and by the night time i'm kind of spent um i haven't eaten since this morning um i've been traveling for three months i just got back here actually yesterday and i am tired but uh, I'm, well, we'll, we'll spice it up. We'll have fun. If you don't mind me asking you, how long have you been down there? I've been in Southwest Florida, which, of course, is just the same thing. Um, but I moved from Chicago. So for me, one of the beauties of being here, and I'm only here three years, is I walk out at lunch and I see palm trees and I dip in the pool for a few minutes and I come back out. It's a mini vacation. Yeah, I know that's true. I mean, this morning... Um, I with the traveling, I I did I I got a nerve problem with the with the disc and I've been in agony. Um, but you know, this morning I did 50 laps in the pool, you know. That's one pool life. That's um, awesome. so yeah, I get it. So how long have you been really down the sale there? Oh, yeah, and I've been there since 2015. Oh wow. So you're pretty pretty well used to it. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, if we want to go kind of black, um, I, I came with my family. And and no one really kind of dig the vibe except me. Uh, I'm here to plug myself in again to the 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 fountain of youth. I, you know, I'm 10, 15 years younger when I'm here. Today I just feel you know, I, whatever. I've got to like plug in. Um, but but I think ultimately I chose St. Bars. Um, and yeah, I'm now sadly in the process of divorcing, but yeah, you make your choices. <laughs> no doubt. Well, we'll get if you're tired, we'll we'll say something that will piss you off or get you frustrated and get the blood going again. It's kind of what we do. It's kind of a skill, and I think you're gonna like it. Um, uh, let's let's go. We just heard both of us listen to your um, interview on Bloomberg from a sure. couple of weeks ago. And thought it was absolutely fantastic. Thank I you. thought when you went into, I want to talk to you about gold. Want to talk to you about banks. I want to talk to you about long bonds, why you think there's value there, if you still do, which one of those topics you want to hit? I, was, I, thought, I thought you were going to be contentious and like, I really get under my skin. I mean, you no, guys- No, I'm going to at some point in time. I'm waiting for you to drop your guard. <laughs> come after you. It's a tactical bout. <laughs> you guys are pussycats. Um, <laughs> oh, God, like, uh, you know, like, remind me what was the list again. Uh, so, no, uh, so, okay, first of all, 
So you talked about the bank crisis, which I think is fascinating. You think, in fact, we pulled two, well, this, I think I'm paraphrasing you from Bloomberg. Money supply is being pulled back too quickly. That's deposits exiting the banks. We are basically fucked if this continues. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. Um, you don't need, if this continues, no, we are fucked <laughs> royally. Um, and, and why? Um, I, I go back to this tease that there are only five people in the universe that understand money. And they don't work for central bankers. They don't work for hedge funds. They don't work for Goldman Sachs. Um, they're an eccentric bunch. Um, it is, we are, owing to this blind ignorance, the pseudoscience of economics, we are persistently making policy errors. And um, the thing that the Federal Reserve excels in is psych psychops. Um, it has convinced the community that it is um, in control. And I'm sorry to tell you folks, but they're clueless. And it, it's too easy to kind of throw brick bats and kind of just kind of try and take down public servants. You know, who would want their job? Um, but I mean, let's just kind of review uh, the administration's um, suggestions to, to fill the, the vice chair of the Federal Reserve. And, and there's a there's another position. Um, and you look at the people and it's it's political fudge. They look right. If you look at their credentials, you know, Jay, um, Jay is many things, but he's not an expert on the monetary system. Um, now, you could say that's fine. He just like a judge. He has to be the arbiter of fine decisions. And he has a, a bank of hundreds of PhDs to advise them. But they're PhDs in a in a pseudoscience. Um, their models don't work. Um, we find ourselves, how did we get into this mess? We find ourselves where official global policy is to contain wages, like paying the real folk a decent you know, stick of money is, is public enemy number one. Uh, and I'm here uh, my, uh, if I do, I have a campaign. I mean, I'm not running for elected office. Can you imagine? Um, but you know, pay the folk more money. Like I, I want. I just be explicit. I want higher global wages. It would be a good thing. Okay. To some that would seem contentious, and they would say, "But that's inflationary." I think you've been sold a dud if you believe that. And let's try and keep it simple. There are simply three components in the dynamic of GDP growth. Population growth, productivity growth, and debt growth. And I think when you look at it like that, we can kind of, we can examine that and say, we're not really having more babies. I mean, I was going to say I'm trying, but I'm certainly not trying to have more babies. Um, but anyway, let's not talk about me. Uh, so... <laughs> We ain't going to get growth from suddenly having a lot more sex, you know. Um, but it's worth a try. Well, maybe protect the sex. So anyway, whatever, you know. Um, and, um, and productivity growth. Productivity growth is kind of weird thing because I kind of want to say that without a doubt, I feel more productive. I'm sure you feel more productive when we walk around with this thing planted in our brain. You know, one day it will be in our brain. Um, but 
all the official data suggests that productivity growth is, is low, and it's certainly not contributing uh, to economic growth. And so you're left where the only variable determining economic growth is debt growth. And, and debt is a liability. You know, so we the world is a, it's a double ledger accounting system. So a liability requires an asset. And so debt, sorry, GDP growth requires more liabilities, and therefore we need more assets, which is to say we get asset inflation to bring us back into balance. Um, and that's where we are. We're, we're almost four times debt to GDP globally. Um, and the asset inflation that that requires is disenfranchising the many. We've reached a point where um, we, we live in the epoch of Marxism being, being relevant, not being correct, but being relevant because we've got a present generation of kids who are looking at their, their parents and thinking they can't emulate uh, the wealth that they accrued. They can't afford um, apartments in big metropolises or in nice fancy suburbs. It's out with their reach. So what can we do about it? Like I say, we're not going to have more babies. So we have to really focus on productivity. Um, and productivity is I mean, it sounds like a scary kind of technical word. It's, it's really not. Product, the, the, the myth of the low productivity, I think, is largely explained by um, investment, commercial, entrepreneurial investment. It's kind of on its ass. And if you look at it historically as a percentage of GDP, um, it's at the low end. So how do we stimulate investment? And that's where you come back to, pay the real folk a decent stick of money, okay? Because the thing, there are two things that stimulate investment. Cost, price, inflation. Corporations don't like that. You know, that's called margin compression. And your stockholders won't like it. And so you will do everything to fight cost, price, inflation. So the principal cost for the majority of corporations is the cost of labor, okay? So push it up, and I promise you, they will be investing hand over fist for labor-saving uh, technologies. It's a bit like, um, you know, I, I know uh, global warming or whatever uh, splits opinion, but without a doubt, there have been profound advances in the green technology. And I want to say that they are a function of the investment created by high oil prices, you know, the cartel, you know, the, the boys in the Middle East. Um, have le left a legacy of very high oil prices. You know, we, we almost hit 150 bucks in 2008. And that created the focus and the determination to contain that cost via investment. So first of all, let's pay folks more and create a demand for investment. And then secondly, it's a bit like uh, Henry Ford demonstrated this. You know, um, I don't know if it's, it's not apocryphal, like, but, but he kind of doubled salaries across the board. People thought he was crazy. He was kind of chiming into this logic. And what, what he intrinsically recognized is, who buys the cars? It's the people who work in the factories. When I mean, you give them more money, you know what? They can afford a car. And the leverage you get on your revenue, your top site, is a big help in containing the cost inflation and, and preserving your margin. And what's more, you find that when you pay the real folk, 
decent money, they spend it. You know, the people with the, the low incomes, the, the, the rich Wall Street fat cats, they save. Yeah, they save 80% minimum. Um, the people who are living hand to mouth, they spend. So what you're doing is there's a thing in economics called the fallacy of composition. Um, if you pay everyone more, they're going to buy more goods and services. And so you want to invest again to expand your capacity. So, so it's simple. Let's pay more money to the, to the folks. Now contrast that, and I'm going to shut up, um, but contrast that with the Fed's explicit policy is determined by an economic doctrine called the Phillips curve, which is audaciously ridiculous in its assertion that the tightness of the labor market transfers bargaining power to the real folk, and God forbid, they bid wages higher. Now, statistically, that theory does not stand up. And that's why, you know, the rebuke is, dear Federal Reserve, could you just remind me of the last time, like, you made a positive difference to people's life? You know, why'd you keep sticking it to us? Um, so we have a Federal Reserve with a, a, an indoctrination of a, of a wonky policy, and, and the people who are getting it to them, handed it to them, are the real folk, they're not spending, and the corporations are not spending on investment, so productivity is stalled, and therefore it is debt, debt, debt. We can change that. Hugh, first of all, I want to ask you a question about the productivity point that you brought up, because you, I'm using non-farm productivity as a metric. I don't know if that's the one you use or not, but you can use any one you want. We've only seen over the last 20 years, tiny little spikes in productivity, and they usually reverse back to the mean. So we haven't seen any productivity growth. We've been told over and over again that technology is deflationary and it's not a productivity gain. Well, let me rephrase that. We've never been told it helps productivity and it's not showing up in the data. Is that because they're not paying people the commensurate salary to the gains that companies make based off of technology? I mean, AI is a good example. That people should become much more productive with AI, but if they don't get the commensurate wage gains, it's not helpful. Is that one of the things you're saying? Yeah, I mean, the the, the technology paradigm, the, the technology that, that we understand because it's the technology of the last 15 years. I mean, when was the first iPhone? Um, and, and the technology associated with the, the platforms of Alphabet, Google, of Meta, Facebook, et cetera. Are pretty much a, a winner takes all, you know. The, the return to the original seed entrepreneur is enormous. It's not necessarily you, know, you don't require an army of people um, to to produce it, and therefore the enfranchisement of the original idea is very much an, an elite thing. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I would I would attribute the productivity problem um, to the fact that um, macroeconomic history ended in 1998, 25 years ago. Um, and, and no one seems to have recognized that. Um, and what I'm talking about specifically is the tiger Asian crisis. Now, that wasn't a tiger Asian hedge fund. That was the, the sovereign nations of Indonesia, of Thailand, et al. And they had lots of really groovy investment opportunities because their economies went from you know a, a handbasket to trying to get closer to what we would call normal in terms of a standard of living. And they were 
reliant. I don't like that word reliant, but they were uh, facilitated on that journey by accepting the savings of the rest of the world. Um, and then as often happens, there was a crisis of confidence and the money was pulled and those countries had to devalue their currency. And, and perhaps just as importantly, the, the governing plutocracy was evicted. You know, the Suhartos of Indonesia et al. were kicked out of office never to return. And this was occurring at the same time as China was like hitting scale, hitting size. I mean, still, when I say scale, it was still a sub $1 trillion economy, but clearly it was going to be the future. It was the next one to join the industrialization. Um, but it was doing so, again, under, um, well, under a kind of, I mean, what's the polite term for the Chinese Communist Party? I mean, I'm struggling. <laughs> we, we don't need a polite word for it, so don't look too hard. <laughs> yeah, so the, you know, uh, a totalitarian communist system um, was, seeking, you know, was seeking to industrialize. And the number one objective is the continuation of the tenure of the Chinese Communist Party. And so when they looked around at their peer group, when they saw political leaders being jettisoned because of uh, what was deemed to be the reliance on overseas capital, they rejected that model. Um, instead, and I'm amazed that people don't really talk about this, um, we do have to talk about industrialization. Um, so you know, China in the last 40 years has gone through um, what America enjoyed, experienced in the 19th century, you know, industrialization. Um, the industrialization of America was financed by the Brits. You know, can you believe that the plucky Brits financed <laughs> America? Uh, you know, uh, at that time, the UK was the hegemon. Um, and it had profound surplus savings, and it was looking for investment opportunities. And actually, after the Napoleonic Wars, which, you know, like the 1800s, uh, it opened up, um, well, it, it, um, they, to repair finances, they, they took the strictures of the gold standard away from the banks. They said to the banks, go and be merry, you know, make a lot of money. It would help the exchequer, if you will. Uh, and so the UK banks, you know, the, the biggest investment opportunities were to be found in America, initially financing um, the canal system and, and everything else you know about. And periodically there were crises um, and uh, there was a common refrain amongst uh, London bankers, those bloody Americans, I don't trust them, they're cheats, they're scoundrels. You know, they keep fucking with us, you know, because there would be crises. <laughs> scale to what you saw in 1998 you know like things periodically go wrong it's the it's the spirit the exuberance of capitalism we have uh, an upward arc of prosperity but it's kind of cyclical and the the uk was uh, tied into it but you know by and large i mean not by and large you know without a doubt the returns to the uk from in from investing and financing the industrialization of the us were profoundly high uh, and under that model uh, the U.S. run uh, run trade, they run trade deficits, and the U.K. ran um, a financial account deficit, which is to say, um, it was investing in American assets. Um, that's that's an amazing, wonderful model. Um, contrast that with uh, another group of communists, but you know the the original bad boys. So when Lenin, and then it, when he handed it over to to Stalin. 
uh, in the 1930s. Russia began a similar, well, not similar, but it began an industrialization, you know, from an agrarian society to actually having factories and, you know, uh, and making stuff, except no one would trade with them because they were commies. You know, everyone was terrified about the precedent of the Bolshevik revolution. Um, and so uh, Stalin traded with the Nazis. I mean, you know, the, the, the bad guys got together um, mm -hmm. and the, the Hitler et al. traded their know-how know know in manufactured goods, in capital goods. And, in, and the trade was that Russia traded its wheat uh, for the technological kind of leg up. Um, so what China, sorry, forgive me, what Russia was doing was explicitly financing its industrialization, not from the good folk overseas looking to make a return, um, but it was actually financing it domestically via the starvation and ultimately um, the death of millions. I mean, I don't know what the estimate is. 30 million Russians died of hunger in, in a country which was... Uh, of this incredible kind of uh, harvest. And, and so there's two ways. China has chosen the Stalinist measure. Um, China does not want the hegemon of America uh, to be the principal source of financing its incredible, incredible arc of industrialization. It's relied upon um, the, the domestic source of savings. Um, and it's done so in a manner which is complex and it's very hard you know for the the real good folks to understand but it you know effectively it doesn't provide universal health care um, it has a regressive taxation the principal tax generator in china is sales tax now you think of that a billionaire buys a pack of marlboro light um and he pays the same tax as the guy who's been you know in the factory all day it's regressive um and so we think and i've seen i've lived too long and and the world falls into these kind of cultural social kind of um um simplifications we think you know i remember before we had southeast asia uh, emerging markets were latin america and and those folk my god they just they had a hunger to work they just they were worker bees they worked damn harder than we do they're just made up and and the same notion today would be that the Asians are savers. There is just the, you know, it's culturally inbred in them to be cautious and, and to save more. And that is not the case. It's a function of uh, um, the tyranny of the central command. And so what we have, they create a profound pool of savings. The, the Chinese Communist Party com kind of effectively confiscate that what could be wealth. Um, the wealth could be the fact that the Chinese currency should have appreciated the Chinese citizens who have been moved from the countryside into the metropolis, who work in these, who, who make our Apple iPhones. We might discuss Apple later. I've been tweeting about Apple. Uh, Apple was almost 99% relying on China for the manufacture of its iPhones. Um, all of that, you know, China has gone from a $0.7 trillion economy to $17 trillion. It's the size of Europe today. Okay. And yet its currency has devalued. It's devalued versus the US dollar over the last 35 years. It's gone from six and it's now seven, um, which is to say you required six. I call it red cabbage. Um, I'm fed up calling it remember one. Let's call it red cabbage. Um, you needed six to buy a dollar. Today you need seven. And the way the chart looks, it looks like you might need eight. 
Yeah. So what they're doing is they're impoverishing their own folk. And at the same time, they're impoverishing the folk in Chicago and in the industrial heartlands of, of America, the UK, Europe, because wages can't rise. And that's why, again, corporations are just not investing. So forgive me again, very, very long and convoluted, but um, it's what you call mercantilism. And it has to end. It's, it's a class war. And unfortunately, the Federal Reserve doesn't recognize this. And they are, I think, unwilling participants in a profound and ugly class war against the real folk. It's got to end. And it can only end with these discussions on your show and other shows and trying to break it down. I'm probably doing a very poor job in trying to enunciate what is a complex area, but we need the folk to understand so we can find politicians to fight for the cause. Okay, so you, I think, because I think what I got from it, and I'm going to wrap it up, and I think I know what your answer is, but um, but I, I hope that it's not certain. Because to me, the wages portion of it is the most important thing. And you said we need wages to rise. Are you advocating, one, the Fed to get the hell out of the way, let the currency go to its natural spot, two, the government to provide gentle incentives for companies, big corporations to spread the wealth, or three, and God, I hope this isn't what you're getting at, is the government to start mandating that companies have to pay certain amounts, yada, yada. What do you think? Um, mostly one and two, but if pushed, uh, I'd be in favor of mandated higher minimum wages uh, across all states in America, simply for the logic of Henry Ford. Um, so what was the first one? <laughs> in my mind? No, no, I said the, the Fed just getting out of the way. Oh, and yeah, get those, get those <laughs> damn bozos, get those damn bozos out of the way. I mean, here we so are. So are you an end the Fed guy like I'm becoming, I believe? Um, so the Fed has a role to play uh, is the back hot. Uh, I mean, your, uh, your listeners will be going, or watchers will be going, I mean, who the hell is this guy? I mean, back hot. <laughs> Any aficionado of central banking knows that there was a, a writer, Walter Backhaut, uh, in the 19th century in London. And he said, you know, the role of the central bank is to come in and be the lender of last resort. You know, um, our capitalist system is the kind of is flawed, but it's the best damn system. No one's come up with a better hack. Um, in being flawed, because we're damn stupid human beings, we get overexcited and then we get overly pessimistic. And when we get overly pessimistic, you need someone to come in and, and provide liquidity and buy good assets. That's the Federal Reserve's rule. Let me tell you what we do not need in a market-based, in the almighty United States economy. Why do we have a Politburo? Or why do we have the Vatican Council sitting there stuffed with wise old people um, determining what the right interest rate is for the economy? That, that's just... Bonkers. Yeah, we're, we're all on the same page on that. You go yeah. ahead. Yeah, I mean, the, the market does the job every single day. Mm -hmm. um, and most of the time, the Fed's kind of, you know, asleep and out of the way. Most most of the time, up until 2008, the economy was was jiggy. You know, the, 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 the I think the 35-year trend in U.S. GDP um, was on average about 2.7% positive every year. And when it's kind of jiggy like that and kind of expanding and, and prosperity is on the rise for everyone, you can kind of handle the Fed being 
idiots. But that's not been the case for the last 15 years. We can't underwrite policy errors, and we don't need to. So the Fed, of course, is kind of woken up and it's like, oh, we have this dumb motto, it's wrong, but we believe in it. You know, people, the, the real folk have got too many jobs, so we've got to come in and spoil the party. And so you have, the federal funds rate has been on the move. And we have this thing called the yield curve. You know, every day, market participants, some of them might agree to, you know, trying to make a fast buck. But by, by and large, the core is businesses have to hedge the future. They have to have a view on the future. And, and the, the market price is the wisdom of thousands and thousands of folk distilled into one price. And the federal is how many members are there of the Fed? I should know this. How many voting members of the Fed are? I think there's like 12 voting members, Bobby. I wanted to say 12. Um, yeah, but, that's, that's, that know. jumps out to me, but I don't know. Yeah. What's the, the chance that the 12 folk are going to get it right? At least you would think that, the, <laughs> at least you would think they would be curious about what the thousands of other people who, who, who nail it, who always get it right. You think they would kind of listen to that, but they don't. And so you get this phenomenon, it's called uh, an inversion um, in the yield curve. Um, when the Fed pushes rates beyond the wisdom of the marketplace. And that's where we are today. The market's like, you're wrong. Dude, yeah, exactly, right. You're wrong. <laughs> you're going to do damage. Your models don't work. So in terms of Fed abolishment, um, I would abolish the Fed's role as an interest rate setter. Um, and I'd leave that to... Um, public but privately determined uh, markets. They Doesn't do. sound radical to us. Bobby, what do you got? Yeah, it's it's funny to me. It is 12 members, by the way, guys. And it is, uh, you never have more than two, two dissenters. I mean, mm -hmm. not in the 30 years I've been doing this. I've never seen more than two. Yeah. Uh, so it always, and, and most people just assume it's basically the Fed's decision. Right? They said they may dissent, but they're going to go along with, the, I'm sorry. The I even think the dissenters are plants half the time, too, and make it <laughs> look like, like it's an open discussion. Just put a couple of dissenters in yeah, here. Yeah, you dissent this time, Bob. Yeah. But here, so here's my question, Hugh. From perspective of um, where we're at now versus where we can go, how ridiculous to somebody like you, because I know the answer is it's ridiculous, but what part and how ridiculous is the whole concept of a debt ceiling and negotiations to raise the debt ceiling to increase the debt to pay for spending that they've already voted on that exceeds the debt ceiling? Evan, so um, let me be bold. The debt ceiling will be a result. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Um, the debt ceiling cannot be... Uh, a determinant factor in your investment decisions today or tomorrow. Um, it's it's like uh, being fearful of flying and not flying. It's just it's it's not rational. Um, let's expand it, however. Well, at first, and, and well, let's expand it. Um, stocks are going to the stonks. Is that what you call the S and P? Is that <laughs> some do? We don't. The cool kids we do. We are not the cool kids. <laughs> I, I I hang with the cool kids. Uh, yeah, we do not. We were the cool kids. You should have noticed 30 years ago, man. Yeah. <laughs> we're pretty fucking cool, you. Yes. <laughs> That's why I tell myself every morning. Uh, Amen. 
the the stonks have got a stonk lore. Um, the the market's got to have a, a pretty epic period of panic just to to wake up, you know, the knuckleheads um, that we've elected and and who create this drama. Um, we got to we just got to make it like we have. You know, this is what happened the last time, two thousand eleven. I think S and P dropped thirteen uh, percent. Um, I think I, I can't imagine how that doesn't happen again. It's necessary. The market just has to is is the invisible hand, but you know, um, the boys have to be slapped vigorously to make to make sense. Um, let's expand further. Um, both ends of the the binary U.S. political system um, actually converge on fiscal conservatism, even, even the Dems. Um, and there was a time, maybe there was a time when that made sense. Um, but since the end of history, i.e. 25 years ago, it hasn't made sense to be fiscally conservative. Um, Japan um, has ballooned its public debt from 40% of GDP. Um, a, you know, at the at the at the at the end of its bubble era, at the end of the 1980s, and don't call me to be precise, but I think it's about 250 percent of GDP. US GDP today is 100 percent. Most major developed economies have converged on about 100 percent of GDP. Um, it it can be higher. Um, the problem has been the the wisdom of how they've spent the money. Has it been there? It's been twofold. The wisdom of spending. So, uh, if the money was spent productively, um, it would enhance the wealth of the nation. Um, by and large, it hasn't been invested productively. Um, okay, and governments never invested productively, right? Well, yeah. I mean, let, let's say yes. Let's say yes. Um, the opportunity set to invest productively is huge. And it should be a bipartisan thing. But the thing that unites them is they can't agree on infrastructure spending to the degree which is necessary. They can't, you know, like I've spent three months back and forth with the US and, and it's cool and it kind of works. Yeah, but you know, I was at, I was at the Chicago O'Hare airport. I mean, it's like <laughs> It was like Victorian times. I mean, it's really kind of quaint, but it's from another era. Like, rip it down, rebuild it, you know. Uh, New York, get a bloody fast train from those airports. In, in How about that? That's the craziest thing ever, that they don't have a train from the goddamn airport. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. yeah. But they, they, they just have a, a weird accounting system where they say, oh, it's too expensive. Trust me, it'll, whatever you pay, to get a fast train connection from those New York airports into town, you can never overspend. In hundred years' time, you'd be laughing. You'd be like, "Did we really think we could afford this?" Um, so that's odd. You know, you've got uh, a healthcare system which is profoundly politicized, which is to say illogical. You know, um, I don't watch much TV, but you know the ad the ads for first of all, you have ads for salty and and sweet products which make you ill. Uh, and then you have the ads, you know, for the the, the treatment. But you have the, the ads for the treatment, a lot of OTC, because people sit there and they don't feel good. You can't afford to go and see a doctor. It's too dumb. <laughs> what, what do you need? 
what, what, what's your monthly premium for private for good private uh, health insurance today? I mean, you know it better than me. It's oh, just it's a thousand bucks. Yeah, how much? It's a shit ton. Yeah, yeah, thousand bucks. That's for but yeah. just a couple, and then your deductible is like six or seven grand. I mean, we you right. pay a lot around here for it's good insurance. And that's yeah. coming out of after tax income. Uh, no, you can. There no. are programs that allow you to pay with before tax income now. Okay, well, a lot of people don't even use those programs because it's so convoluted. But your no. deductible is after tax income. Right. Yes, right. But you know this. this you know, um, having you, 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 you know, Americans have to go and see doctors, and they have to get remedies for their ailments, and they have to stop eating too many sugary, salty products. But you know, um, there, there is again an, an opportunity set for the government to do things better. Um, okay, but so so the healthcare issue, though, Hugh, because I was just thinking about this in argument with someone before. If the government got out of it, if, if we were an insurance company and we said, if you're a fat ass who can't tear yourself away from McDonald's and can't tear yourself away from eating sugary shit, we're not going to provide you health insurance. But our insurance companies in America can't do that because the government would absolutely lambaste them if they did. The seatbelt issue in cars, if insurance companies just said, yeah, we're not going to insure you if you get in an accident, you don't have your seatbelt on, the government would have been like, can you believe these evil people? We will rescue you. So it doesn't work if the, as the government gets involved, or am I crazy? I mean, I'm sure, I hope you're crazy. Good. <laughs> <laughs> this, sadly, however, the, the, the system it is illogical. And I, yeah, we have to be careful about, um, you know, um, those are kind of who determines, you know, how poor your lifestyle is, um, is an issue. Um, but to your point, I mean, to your insurance point, um, if I was an insurance point, let, let's go crazy, right? Um, I would cut your, I, I would insure your, uh, your, your car, like driving. I, I would cut your, what do you call it, your deductibles or something, whatever you pay for it. I, I, I would undercut the market by 80%, but I'd have one insistence. Um, I would create um, a dagger, which you could attach to the steering wheel. <laughs> and if you hit something, you die. <laughs> but you, it would focus your mind. And you, Hell yeah, it would. You would drive safely. You know, to me, it was one of the one of the most effective uses of government funds to place in the late 70s and early 80s with cigarettes, where instead of outlawing cigarettes, all they did was a decade long campaign to make people realize how bad for you cigarettes are. And it didn't eliminate smoking by any stretch, but it cut it by multiples. And I think about people like, like my nieces who are 15, 18, 20. And to them, if they see somebody who smokes, that's just, they don't want anything to do with them. And, and it was more of a, here's the data. We're going to keep showing you the data. Go ahead and make up your own mind. I'm still that person now who takes my seatbelt and locks it behind me just so the beeping will stop. Yeah. And I, I look at myself as a prime example of somebody who's, who to my own detriment says, don't tell me what to do. And that I think is one of the things, and maybe that's, I don't think it's uniquely American. I think it might be uniquely Western. I don't know. Um, but I think if government tried to, and I'm going to have a question, I promise. I think if government tried to actually 
influence rather than dictate, especially in our culture, it would work a lot better. So to that, how much of what the government in general, pick any area you want, Hugh, and I ask everybody this, how much of it is stupidity and how much of it is nefarious? I mean, it's, it's misguided fear. Um, to your point about um, the smoking culture, I, I think it's um, profoundly American. Mm -hmm. um, it's astonishing how few people smoke in right. America. Right. Um, everyone puffs. <laughs> I mean, ever, I, mean I, I like, you know, the cool has... Everywhere I, I, else, right? Oh, everywhere. I, like, where I go, everyone. <laughs> like, I mean, I was... My favourite hotel in the... In the in the world, um, in London, the, the Chiltern is an Andre Balzac place, and it's a cool cat place. Um, I can tell you many stories, uh, <laughs> but we stop the recording if you're going to do that. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm looser than low hanging fruit. I mean, I don't care. I share, I share it all. Um, but all the action, the late night action, uh, goes goes down in the basement. Um, which is underground and it's got kind of ventilation up up to the you know the the road, um, and everyone smokes. And you know if you're looking for some hot hot girls or if you're a guy, uh, the opposite girl's looking for for the guys. Um, you gotta be down there, you know. The, the idea that you so it's anyway, so it's culturally different. Um, uh, in terms of the the motivation of the politicians. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, as a European looking looking in, you know, um, and as a former hedge fund manager, business owner, um, you you would think my interests align with the Republican Party, um, but how can I be aligned with, you know, people where policy is set by God, Jesus Christ? Uh, and and where the government actually dictates uh, a woman's body, uh, and we ha we have all these. I mean, the, the Americans, you know, you know. You, I guess you've got more people who go to church, by, by but that must be declining. But um, I think there is a. I mean, we know this for a fact. There is just a huge percentage of America which has now become politically disenfranchised. There's not a party that represents them. Um, how long does that continue? I mean, I'm thinking about kind of pushing, like, you know, I, I do Twitter and I'm out there, I'm trying to be prolific. Uh, and there's a bit where you've got to be a, a bit shocking for, for attention, you know, that game. Um, and I'm thinking, you've got to, do you, do I go out and let, let's test this against you guys, but do you have to abstain to show your disdain? You know, it, it's the odds are increasing that it's going to be a runoff again in the elections between Trump and Biden. How, you know, my, my advocacy would be abstain. You know, if 90% of the population abstained, they'd have to do something about it. And I'm wondering, is there some, is there an election reform um, which involves um, this thing? Yeah. This thing, what you know, and one of the at your introduction, uh, when you were referring to my Bloomberg, and I was, I was simply saying that the mercury is rising from like zero probability 
to something which we we just have to have a dialogue whereby the the US authorities may have to suspend for a temporary manner um the ability of US citizens to withdraw money from their their bank accounts um you know and that's a shocking thing to say um I'm not saying it's going to happen but I'm saying we have to have that dialogue because again this thing we've discovered is a weapon of mass destruction if you're listening to this he's pulling up an iPhone oh yeah yeah (laughs) an iPhone um it, it the banking sector will never be the same again Humpty Dumpty has fallen off his wall and I don't think all the good folk at the Treasury and the Federal Reserve can put them back together again because um, the banking model worked on the inertia of deposits that we all hate banks but the hassle historically of going and pulling your money out meant that you just kind of harumphed and you, you stayed there now you can Boom, 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 you can take it out. So actually, the advent of this technology and its widespread adoption has allowed us to kind of challenge this deep-seated kind of fourth estate, the banking sector, um, and say, we're not having it. It's going to change. Now, that comes with dangers and opportunities, and that's kind of why I was saying um, that they may have to consider, as they try and reconfigure the banking sector they may have to kind of say look folks we're working on it can you come back i mean they, and and it, people say oh no but you know something similar was you know the 1934 federal reserve act when um, people were pulling money out of the, the bankrupt banking sector and, and holding gold coins and the fed said you know that's illegal you have to return those gold coins they were essentially gating the banking community so, you know, these in exceptional circumstances, these things. Happen. Can I ask you a question along these lines so I don't forget it before? So, if, if you're advocating for slowing down the process of withdrawing money, perhaps I, I putting words in your mouth, but banning short sales and banks. This is specific to banks. Fractional banking is a confidence game to begin with, right? Different than any other industry. So, within banking, I get those things. You're not saying putting the brakes on other industries as well, correct? Uh, well, I'm not advocating um, a, a gate on deposits. I'm certainly not advocating um, banning of truth-telling via uh, short sales. Uh, right. Being there, you know, they went there. It doesn't work, yeah. Well, yeah, they went there in September 2008. What did we get? We got October 2008. You know, <laughs> and what they don't get is... Uh, in a dislocation when markets fall precipitously, um, if you have short sellers, you have a community of investors who've just made a big gain. And the only way they can crystallize the gain is to buy stuff, which is the magic dust. It's the thing you're missing. And so that's why the, the September decision was so catastrophic, because you, you, you took out the buyers who would have bought the bottom. I can recall I was returning. Um, I was on a bus to the airport in, in Athens. I'd been at the Morgan Stanley European Hedge Fund uh, conference. I think I called everyone bad names. I think I was very grumpy. Um, my grumpiness was uh, accentuated when I'm sitting on the bus and the, the short sale uh, thing became public. Uh, I lost 22% that day. Think of how that feels, yeah. 
No. <laughs> it's like you're going to puke, right? Huh. Um, I made 32 for the year. Um, but, you know, dumbass. Um, so I'm not advocating any of those measures. Again, I'm advocating that the Fed get the hell out of Dodge because- Good, that's that's the hook. That's our show. Get the hell out of the way, for God's sakes. Thank you. Anyway, sorry. Because again, we, we, we just got it that the iPhone has destroyed the inertia of the banking sector. It's made it inherently very unstable in its funding. Um, and so now it's easy to pull the money. And so, like, the banks have been sitting there offering you, like, nothing, you know, 10 basis points on your CD. And, and then the Fed, and, and again, the folks at home have to, this is fact. The Fed tightening of the last year is the most rapid of the greatest magnitude in Federal Reserve history. Um, they are royally expletive f expletive inging the banking sector okay because you can pull the money you don't have to go there you just tap your phone and the federal reserve is offering you five and a quarter percent so it's kind of saying hey folks we're over pull your money pull your money pull your money i mean it is willful ignorant but willful uh, vandalism to like one of the the temples that support the vibrancy of the U.S. economy. These guys are, I don't want to say criminals, but I mean, I would charge them for profound complacency and, and the damage that they're going to wreck on the economy. There's a, the storm has been offshore. The economic storm has been offshore. It's been in my imagination, uh, but sad to say is, is making ground and it's, this is going to be severe. So Hugh, I was looking today in the, the high net worth savings account at uh, an institution like a PacWest who was in trouble as recently as 10 days ago, and I guess it's completely fine now. All problems are cured. There's no issues at all. Their highest rate uh, interest rate savings account was about 5.15%. In the Bank of America, it was less than one and a half. Do you see any sort of risk to capital flight in the banks as well, now that we have Treasury Direct and anyone with any sort of, I mean, we've had the two-year note go up 40 basis points since May 12th. Do you see any risk for the capital in the large institutions as well, or is it only regional? Oh, I mean, <laughs> it, it, banking's a risky business. <laughs> huh? um, banking's a hedge fund. It's a very simple hedge fund. Um, it's a hedge fund where um, your depositors are, your, are, are funding, or like your providers of capital. Um, the big hedge funds... I mean, the big hedge funds, you know, if you're an ass, if you're a hedge fund allocator today, do you know what your number one job is? It is groveling, it's being on your knees, begging for an allocation. Very 2007 like. Um, whereas the banks now, you can, you can pull your money, you, you know, you can pull it immediately. And again, that's why I keep coming back and saying, uh, well, they have to introduce some institutionalized gate. And then secondly, in terms of investment, um, the bank hedge fund model has two, uh, two, two ways to go in terms of asset allocation. It, it can lend to the private sector via you know, commercial loans, household loans, and it can lend to the government via buying treasuries. Um, 
the economic storm that is about to really emerge uh, means that they're going to lose a lot of money on there. You know, you know that we already know about it. It's, it's well rehearsed on the the real estate loans, um, Pipe West that you mentioned. Um, right. Just disposed of some at a huge loss. Um, and secondly, you mentioned they're 5.2%. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, um, media propaganda. Hey, guys, you know, the you know, remember Bear Stearns went in, in February 2008 and the Fed and everyone on, you know, Guni TV, financial TV is like, oh, they got it, folks. Nothing to worry about. Move on, move on, move on. Like, be a sucker. No, no, no problem. Move on, move on, you know. This part makes me happy. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> a, a month ago, PacWest was offering 4.2. And like you said, a month later, and it's less than a month, I think it's 20 days, it's 5.2. Thank you, Federal Reserve. Thank you for screwing us royally. We got some issues. Thank you for accentuating. Thank you for giving it up the ass. I mean, it's just insane. Um, then, there's the, then there's the guy with a brilliant smile, Jamie. I mean... Make him president of the United States, right? Just take him out of the banking sector, right? <laughs> he, not him personally, but uh, there's an unstole, untold story about um, the, the regional banking crisis. Um, there's a, uh, again, there's propaganda, small banks, move on, folk. Um, these are huge. Yeah, I mean, the, the assets under management, the you know, deposits, stuff, these are huge. So there's that. Secondly, there's the propaganda is like, oh, you know, this there's nothing systemic, the system's safe again. Keep on keep on moving, folks. It's fine. It was bad management. Looney Tunes, we should have spotted it. Really complacent, really lazy. Utter garbage. I'm not defending the management, but if you want to tell me that they were lamer than all the other executives, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Um, I what what I want to tell you. Um, what I think really happened, the fastest, sharpest increase in interest rates ever, motivated by a, a policy philosophy that has no statistical evidence to support it, is making the economy slow down. Do you know the number of, um, you know, I wear a trucker hat and my father was a trucker uh, I've got kind of good trucking folk and they send, they DM me on Instagram. I think they're too busy looking at, you know, cute girls in bikinis and then like, oh, let's look at the asset capitalist. And they, they DM me say, dude, my business is dropping off a cliff and no one's listening. No one cares. Um, so the regional banks have, every, every organization has a need for daily liquidity and they've been struggling as the economy silently has deteriorated. Um, and that's kind of fine because you have a, a wholesale funding market. It's kind of below the surface. It's difficult. You, they don't really talk about it much, uh, but it's called the repo market. And, and a bank has all of, you know, we discussed it being like a hedge fund. It has all of these assets called loans. And just like we saw with the, the ability to, what do you, I want to call it mortgage-backed securities, you know, where the argument is you can diversify, diversify geographically and bring all of these risk assets together and, and there's less risk. Uh, and then you can sell it on as an asset. Banks, everyday banks do that. They say they, they come to the repo market and they say, listen, 
Um, you know, I am XYZ bank. I, I operate in California, you know, a gigantic uh, state, and I've got a mixture of, mixture of commercial, uh, commercial, industrial, and household loans. I've got a billion dollars, and I'd like to. Um, it's like going to a pawn shop. The repo market is a pawn shop, and you go in with with a, a billion dollars uh, of um, these loans, and you say, "Can you lend me?" What we lend me, and typically we'll say, here's a billion dollars, here's a billion dollars of treasury, but uh, and I'm going to accept the collateral as collateral as a safety, so that you come back tomorrow. I'm going to take your loan book. Uh, what Jamie's not telling you is that the money center banks and the guys who operate, who are the funders to that system, from the end of last year, they went, nerd, you know, system's getting really funky. It's really slowing down. I don't want that risk. You know, they're looking at the property loans like, I don't want that risk. Oh, someone's calling me. Um, am I really getting calls? Uh, anyway, um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want that. And so historically, they would have given you, um, ah, forgive me. This is terrible. I'm usually on, I'm on sleep. Why is it? <laughs> yeah, no, this is an informal show. We don't give a shit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we really don't care. I do. I'm a professional. <laughs> that makes one of us. <laughs> the, uh, so, yeah. Um, so, effectively, that wholesale funding from the, the big, big banks stopped. Um, and and they'd been getting, they'd been, you know, people had been pooling money and they were getting kind of starting to see bad risk emerge in their, 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 their portfolios. Um, the wholesale banks said, we're, we're not funding you. Okay. So, you're like, again, you're like beginning to get worried because the other thing we haven't discussed is that the feds said to the banking sector, listen, if you buy treasuries and you, you hold them to maturity, you don't have to mark to market. Yeah. Right. And so um, it doesn't, if we move interest rates, don't worry about it because you know, you won't have to put it through your profit and loss account. Your shareholders will kind of never know as this is riskless lending. Um, and again, that was, um, a well-founded argument, but I would say that there's a conceit of, of well-formed arguments that something unexpected happens and you just discover it was a really bad decision. You know, so I mentioned 2000, 2006, 2007, we had these mortgage-backed securities and they seemed to be riskless securities because we had never experienced a nationwide decline in US house prices until we did. And they went from being riskless to being pretty damn risky. And, and that changed. And, and, and that's the risk in the hold to maturity portfolio is because if there's a run on the bank, you you can't sell those to bring liquidity in. Yeah, well, you, you have to sell them. Indeed. So, you, you know, um, it was founded on the, the principle of the inertia of the deposit base. Like, typically, you need $5 billion to uh, to carry you over a, a bank run. And and you're like you're slow giving the money out, and you're like, I need your passport. We're busy. Can you come in tomorrow? You, you all those tales. Whereas like sixty billion just goes in a day, kind of thing. Um, so so suddenly you're like, if I so the repo market won't give me the money, and if I can't find another source, I'm actually going to have to start liquidating the whole to maturity, and and I know that my unmarked loss is bigger than my shareholder funds. So I'm technically insolvent, but that's the secret. And so, you know, SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, 
The next stage is you've got recourse um, to public markets. So you call up Goldman Sachs, I'm like, hey, <laughs> I need to raise, you know, 10 billion bucks. And it goes, hey, no problem. Yeah, we'll, you know, we'll charge you. This is cool. This is what we do. And then they phone around their network and, every, and people are, <laughs> you know, not interested. So the repo market's closed. Uh, the stock market and, and the secondary debt markets are not interested in your paper. And so you've got to sell your whole to maturity portfolio. You're bankrupt. You're dead. That's what's happened. So Jamie et al. were, were functioning it, but it all really stems from the magnitude and the rapidity of Federal Reserve interest rates. They got it wrong. Okay, so here, to, before, you know, we only got a couple minutes left, but you look at the landscape going forward, and what's someone supposed to do with their money as you envision it the next five years? Mm, well, okay, so... Um, I want to say this, but kind of invest like a pro. Um, uh, Stanley Druckenmiller, the, the, a living legend, 30% uh, compound rates of return over 30 years, and very generously because he doesn't manage public money anymore. But once a year, he he, he turns up and he tells you how he does it. Um, and let me paraphrase. He kind of constructs what we call a permanent portfolio. So if you think of, you think of the world in terms of a compass, and there are kind of four... Uh, there are four points in the compass, or there are four quadrants. And the idea is uh, to try and populate those quadrants. That would be diversification. Uh, you could simply just have an equal allocation. Let me tell you the quadrants first. The, qu the quadrants would be the S&P. The second quadrant would be um, the treasury bond market, you know, with term risk, i.e., you know, 10 all the way out to, to 30 year securities. Uh, the third would be cash. And within cash, you might have a determination of maybe you want to hold dollars and, and not euros or euros rather than dollars, or you'd want to be short the yen, or I would say you want to be short red cabbage. Um, but you know that that's a field. And then the final field is alternatives. Um, an alternative is about $100 trillion, and that would be gold. You know, gold's $11 trillion market. Bitcoin, Bitcoin, I think, is about a trillion dollar market. It would be... Um, property investment, your family offices having having property. It would be index-linked treasury securities, you know that kind of thing. And so, if you break the world down like that, have a have something represented in each. So, let me tell you, I um, I want to have very little in the S and P. I I always want to have something in representation. Um, I push comes to shove, I would have kind of. Um, precious metal equities, I'd have agricultural equities, I had uranium equities, commodity equities. I wouldn't have a lot. Okay. Um, and I'll tell you why in a second. If we go to the next quadrant, treasuries, I'd have a lot. I'd have a lot. Um, great investments are contentious. Um, they're full of worry. And, and the exhilaration of when you book a profit is because you had to climb a wall of worry. Um, people think the last thing you want to do is own, uh, you know, I own the, the TLT, the, the ETF, which is kind of 17 year plus uh, maturity for treasuries. I think the inflation thing is, um, is profoundly misunderstood, both by the Federal Reserve and markets. Um, but more than that, because that's just a hunch. But more than that, I wanted what it has in its favor is it's mean reverted, which is to say it has had a good stonking 
you know, the TLT's halved in price. Um, you have taken all of the price gains out of the treasury bond market for the last 18 years. Um, in ter I, in ter so that's a called a mean reversion strategy. It's trading two uh, standard deviations below. What does that mean? If you think of that historic bell curve, the bell curve is showing you you the population of um, like you can go to particular locations and you did and and the size. What do I want to say? The area covered by the bell curve up until that point, mm -hmm. um, and so there are points where um, there's a lot of area under the bell curve. Um, but when you're two standard deviations, you're two standard deviations to the left, like when it gets where the the area is really really small, which is to say it's very rare that we trade there. And so that appeals to me. Um, it doesn't appeal for me. I have to say, I don't do mean reversion for individual stocks because they're too idiosyncratic and it blows up the, the mean reversion. But in a world where there's only four quadrants, mean reversion, I believe, is very appealing. The last time the S&P was as mean reverted as the Treasury is today was March 2009, you know, and that was a wonderful opportunity for, for loading up. The third quadrant, cash, uh, well, I'd have a currency position and I'd be very, 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 very short red cabbage, which is, say, the Chinese currency. And it'd be very, very, very long, the US dollar. And then the final uh, quadrant is kind of where we all have fun. It's the alternative space. Um, I wouldn't have a huge amount. Um, I would have an allocation into uh, Bitcoin, um, not because not because I look like a Bitcoiner. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't have the bug. You know, I don't believe in whatever they're smoking. Um, but like I said, it's a hundred billion dollar quadrant. Bitcoin is kind of let's call it a trillion dollars, and I can see um, it being adopted. This is distinct from crypto. Crypto, Binance, and all that scuzz is a con. It's filthy. It's organized crime, and we have to work to eliminate it. But Bitcoin is a rare mathematical asset, digital asset. I think I can conceive, you know, the gold market's $11 trillion and the Bitcoin market is $1 trillion. I can conceive in the future that gold might be a $20 trillion market and Bitcoin might be a $4 trillion or a $5 trillion. Now, that means Bitcoin goes up four or five times. It means gold doubles, All right? So... Um, I think I'm looking when I look at Bitcoin, it's called it 25,000. It could trade at 10. I think it's a high probability of that, but it could trade at 100,000. So I'm at 25, I might hit 10 on the wide and I might, I may, I might hit 100. I'm going to take that risk every day. Um, and then I kind of, I, I think you can improve the odds by being contentious again and, and the filthy, hideous, uh, and, I, and I'll say why, but the, the, um, the Grayscale Trust. Um, the Grayscale Trust is a closed-end fund and you can buy an asset which is drop 60% and you can buy it like at a 30, 40% discount to NEV. Now, I use all those kind of unflattering terms to Grayscale because they charge a 2% management fee, which is criminal. I'm hoping that finally we get rid of Gensler at the SEC and we get someone that gets it and he actually overcomes the kind of personal animosity and he takes Grayscale down and what, and what I mean by that is he he allows it to turn into an ETF and, and that discount disappears. So I've got an asset which is mean reverted, 
I get to buy the mean reversion with a 40% discount. And I mean, people listening to this will say, this guy's got no idea what he's talking about. They will never turn it into an ETF. The fear of turning into an ETF three years ago was that it would attract a ton of money in. Turn it into an ETF today and a ton of money will escape. Yeah, my, my like turn it into an ETF and I hit, I you eliminate the discount to NEV. I'm out of dodge. Let's do it. Let's take the grayscale money rakers out of the equation by turning it from a closed end fund into an ETF. So, but what I've done, so I've given you my interpretation um, and it's up for other people, but in terms of what the real folk watching this should do, I'm saying here is an apparatus, here is a, an infrastructure, a way of breaking it down and thinking about it and trying to make sure that you're populated at all times in each of the quadrants and then use your discretion to decide where you want to overweight. I use mean reversion. You might use another belief system. That's a, that's a kick-ass. That last 10 minutes is was is very good takeaway for a lot of people. I appreciate that. One quick question about TLT. Does that pay you the treasury rate or is it embedded into the price like a futures contract? Um, TLT pays you, right? Does it pay you? Do you know, I, you know, I'm no, not it, a... I think it embeds it into the price like a futures contract does. And then, you, yeah, okay. So I think, I, I, good, because I have never played in that. We're both futures traders, particularly um, interest rate futures for the last 35 years. But uh, thank you so much for this. This has been great. Bobby, uh, you want to cut it there? That's about it, right? Yeah, no, that's great. It's been about an hour. And, uh, it's the fastest hour in 15 minutes I've been. Yeah, it was fantastic. It's so, so nice of you to be on. Yeah. My, my pleasure. Um, 